On this episode of the ESG Beat, we will hear from Suze McCormick. Suze is a partner at Morrison & Forrester and chairs the Energy and Social Enterprise and Impact Investing Practices. She is one of the leading experts in leveraging corporate form to scale impact. Today, we will learn about how Suze co-led the drafting group for the very first of the new corporate forms, the Social Purpose Corporation in California. We will also hear about her recent corporate form innovations, including nonprofit and for-profit hybrid corporate structures. Welcome to the ESG Beat, Suze. Good morning, Amelia. Thanks so much. And thanks to Berkeley Law School for having me. This beat will focus on corporate form and the debate, which is currently raging, on whether companies should change their corporate form to be accountable to stakeholders. But let's start from the beginning with the different flavors of corporate form. We won't get into the nuances too much here, but let's divide the world at a high level into traditional forms and new forms. So with traditional forms, the most common is, of course, the Delaware Corporation. And as we all know, Suze, directors have wide latitude and have taken stakeholder interests into account for a very long time. The business community seems to be recognizing that with the Business Roundtable's recent statement, among others. So if it ain't broke, why fix it? Why are we fixing it? I think at a high level, if you compare... It, well, if you focus on the Delaware Corporation and you believe that, in fact, the business judgment rule gives a board and management wide latitude to focus on environmental social issues, which I do, um, you think, why do you need a form? Why do you need to think about shifting fiduciary duties or creating a new mission or a new platform for accountability? And I think it comes down to um, the question of being mandatory versus permissive. With the existing Delaware Corporation or California Corporation, a board and the directors may take into account ESG factors. And in fact, many of them do, particularly when they are material to operations and drive profitability. But they don't have to. They are not required to. Um, and the new corporate forms, the PBC in Delaware, the Public Benefit Corporation, or the Social Purpose Corporation in California, those do have this new mandatory requirement where shareholders can agree with boards and management that there may be one or more than one social purpose, which a board has to elevate to an equal status with shareholder value or shareholder return. So let's take a couple of minutes to talk about constituency statutes. I'd like you to explain what they are, why Delaware doesn't have a constituency statute, and how the debate over constituency statutes in California prompted you to advocate for an alternate corporate form. So constituency statutes, well, let, let, let's go back in time. I learned about constituency statutes back in law school um, because I came out of law school in the early 90s and constituency statutes were sort of a new flavor um, adopted in many states, not in Delaware or California, but many states as an anti-takeover device. So when you started to have all of sort of the takeover, hostile takeover activities, um, in the 80s, um, some smart lawyers and legislators said, hey, if we draft into our corporate code 
that a board may or shall take into account all of these other things. That's going to be sort of an alternative to what later came, the shareholder rights or other provisions that could fend off, you know, somebody coming in and trying to, to buy our company that we don't like. So I remembered reading about them in law school. And then um, a number of years ago, B-Labs came to California. Um, so B-Labs initially was purely a certification mark, and they still are primarily a certification mark. They've done a very good job of coming up with a means for companies to assess themselves internally and report out, and then pay a licensing fee um, for the use of the term B Corp. I will note uh, probably several times that B Corp is not an actual new corporate form, it is a certification mark. But B Corp started realizing, I think, that certification was good, but it was not enough because self-certification could lead to greenwashing if companies didn't, you know, have a duty to 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 the mission um, that they that you know that they they articulated through their marketing materials. And so the first thing that B Labs and a lot of other lawyers sort of at the cutting edge started doing is saying, hey, if we rely on these constituency statutes, many states have them, we can actually, you know, create this, this duty, we can, we can, and, and they tried to pass them in, in some additional states, we can create this duty on the part of the board, that they have to consider these environmental, social and governance factors in the ordinary course, and in, in change of control situations. So this will be excellent. It seemed like a great idea. Then they came to California, and for the first time, this is actually my, my civic involvement started because they tried to pass a constituency statute in California, and it went past both the the, uh, the, state, the Senate and the, the legislature, and it went to then Governor Schwarzenegger. And for the firm, I wrote in a very strong objection. Um, and actually, that was included when Schwarzenegger vetoed it. He said, um, in fact, the constituency statute won't work, and there is no constituency statute in Delaware, but there is a need for a corporate form. And why I objected so vehemently, and a lot of other corporate lawyers objected so vehemently to the use of the, of the uh, constituency statute is really accountability. Um, Amelia, you dropped into your new company that you are going to focus in addition to you know, making money on your employees and the environment and women's rights. So that's what you're gonna focus on. And I give you a million dollars, I invest in your company. And I, there's no reporting requirements, so I don't hear from you for year one. I send you an email, I say, how's it going? Are you changing the world? You say, yes, I'm doing great. Year two, no reporting requirements, no measurement, no standards, you're doing great. Year three, I don't hear anything back. And it turns out that you and your friend Danielle have taken all of my money and spent the last three years living in Tahiti. And you are, you are both employees of the company, so I have no recourse against you. I have no ability to say, hey, you said you were gonna focus on employees and the environment and women's rights, there's no accountability, there's no reporting. So that is why I came out so strongly against the constituency statute, but it actually led to uh, the working group that originally drafted the Flexible Purpose Corporation, which predated the benefit corporations and was in California, which was the first of the new corporate forums saying, okay, 
maybe there is a need for companies to have a shell to be required because of the, 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 the tragedy of the commons, because we are not factoring in and pricing in a lot of the environmental attributes and particularly because of climate, if all companies don't start factoring and considering particularly climate, but environmental factors equal to shareholder value, we actually may not have a world left. The constituency statute in, in some ways actually sparked the whole, the start of the whole new corporate forms because folks hated it. And then they're like, okay, but we need something. Let's actually develop an alternative. So you identified a deficiency in the constituency statutes and you persuaded Governor Schwarzenegger to veto that statute, but there was a need for a new corporate form. And the first one in California was a flexible purpose corporation. Can you talk about the accountability mechanisms in that corporate form? And particularly as it relates to mediating between the interests of stakeholders and shareholders. I will do, and I'll also help distinguish it between the, the flexible purpose corporation, which is now the social purpose corporation, and, and it and became the public benefit in uh, corporation in Delaware and some of the other benefit corporations because there are actually two corporate forms in California right now, the social purpose and the benefit corporation. But starting with accountability for what is now the social purpose corporation, there is regular annual reporting to shareholders um, and that reporting actually requires the, the board and management to sort of first confirm what they are measuring. And that is, the, that is sort of the, the progress made toward the mission that is set forth in their articles, um, how they are measuring it, how they are benchmarking it, and then how they are reporting it pursuant to kind of the whatever is best in class. At the time that we passed this, there were no, there was no sort of you know, sort of SEC established guidelines or for ESG now we do have SASB, but all of this was before there were any established sort of guidelines for how you should measure and benchmark and report on ESG. And so we said, go out there, figure out what the best, what, you know, what the best standards are and report on that. And the Social Purpose Corporation requires that um, you report annually. And they also have the equivalent of what's called an 8K reporting. So anytime if during the ordinary course when you're operating, there is something you do either on the financial side or the impact side that will have a material impact, you need to report that as well. And the, the idea behind drafting was if you wait until the end of the year and then three months later and you have your report sort of 90 days after the year, whatever happened, whatever decision that you made was going to be long gone. And so they want, we wanted to pull it forward and have a little more immediate accountability. The Benefit Corporation in California has the annual reporting, but does not have this 8K requirement. And, and let me just explain the sort of the difference and the history here is we started drafting the Flexible Purpose Corporation, a group of 10 volunteers, just corporate lawyers in California. Um, and there were specific things that B-Labs did not like about it. Um, and B-Labs specifically did not like from a policy perspective the fact that the shareholders could pick one mission or one ESG factor. You could have, you know, somebody, at, you could have a sustainable gun manufacturer in Fremont who was making guns but ensuring they're environmentally sustainable. This is 
the flexible purpose or the social purpose is, is designed for all corporations, the corporations that make furniture, the corporations that produce energy, and the corporations that are, that are doing good, that are establishing, you know, programs to reduce recidivism for women at a prison. So it's, it's sort of all types of companies. And they wanted to have a benefit corporation that has a sort of a laundry list in the statute of environmental, social, um, and governance goals that are built into it. So it is designed to be output positive as opposed to output neutral. So that was the one big difference. And another big difference, well, there were actually five, five things that they objected to with the flexible purpose, all of which are in the public benefit corporation. So I feel like we, we lost the battle, but won the war um, when, it ended up, uh, when it ended up in Delaware. Um, they didn't like things like dissenters' rights. We drafted into the public, to the social purpose um, corporation, very detailed means of converting. And we're changing the rules here, right? With, the, with these new corporate forms, we are creating something, a fiduciary duty or a safe harbor, depending on the statute, you know, protection from liability for a board and management when they focus on these specific ESG goals. And so if you're taking a normal corporation, and flipping it into one of these new forms, we wanted to say, hey, Amelia, if you want to get out, we're changing the rules. You know, we were playing, we were playing Canasta and now we're playing bridge. It's a different, you know, it's a different game. It has different rules. If you want to take your cards and go home um, here, you know, we'll give you your cards and you can have them. And so we drafted into center's rights. And I, I still think that is the right uh, the right prescription, that's the right, the right provisions to have in there, but it does make it, it can make it more difficult to convert because you can have investors who decide that they want to be cashed out. They want to get the value for their shares before they convert. And there are many, many cases of that. We actually recommend, we work with a lot of companies that convert and we recommend that they convert in connection with a financing. So if there are some investors who do want to get out, you have a new investors that come in that can take their equity. So along those lines, I'd like to sort of break down mechanically, how does a company change its form? What, what specifically is required? So they, they first go to their board and their board has to approve um, the conversion to the new form. I strongly recommend that the board get a primer and some, uh, some uh, training on how the fiduciary duties are different because the decision-making is different in the ordinary course and in a change of control. I strongly recommend that the board get advice from bankers, mainstream bankers, to understand if they're going to do a financing or eventually sell or go public, what is going to be the impact on valuation. Could be positive, could be negative, could be neutral. It's kind of too soon to tell. Um, and then a company will go out to the shareholders for approval and that that shareholder approval, there is not an, sort of an S1 perspective, but they do need to have an information statement. So you need to have a lot of information about the company, including the financials, and a lot of information about kind of what the company intends to do, why they convert, and then the shareholders vote. Um, and it's a majority or a supermajority approval right from shareholders. And then, then you file a new, to a new charter that you file with your mission baked in with your, if you're a PBC or an SBC, it is your shareholder agreed, whatever you determine is your environmental, social, or, or, or governance goals that are baked in to your charter. Um, as I mentioned, that's a key distinction between the benefit corporation 
and the PBC, SBC, and a lot of the benefit corporations, just, just you know, benefit corporations are very, very different state by state. But the benefit corporations in states like California, where there is a laundry list in the statute, a company can just say in their articles, I'm now a benefit corporation, because all of the things that are in the statutes are then, you know, all of the focus on employees and the environment and the community is all baked in because it's in the statute. There are some companies that put a different mission. And if there's a conflict, as there is right now, there can be a real issue um, if there's a conflict between what they put in the charter and what they put in the statute. But you, then you amend the charter and you file it. And then you have reporting requirements and, and you're off and running. So um, when you say that there's conflicts right now, are you referring to the trade-offs that companies have to make given the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, I'm talking about companies that have that believe they could put into their charter, let's just say they're they're focused on climate change, but in California, the the statute, the the uh, the benefit corporation statute requires does not require a focus on climate, but requires a focus on employees. So what is a if it is a board if you make decisions to terminate employees or furlough employees so you can retain your focus on the environment? You know, do you have risk? Do you have liability um, under the under the California Benefit Corporation statute? That is a question. Also, I will say the 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 benefit corporations, Amelia, have these third party enforcement proceedings, um, which make it easier for particularly for shareholders. But there is a risk that third parties, depending on how they are drafted, could bring then a claim um, for a breach of the mission as set forth in the in the in the uh, in the in the statute. So for those companies where there is a conflict between their charter and uh, the California Public Benefit Corporation, how are you advising them to navigate that? I, I there are two different things they can do. They could amend their their charter so that their charter doesn't conflict with the statute, or more often I advise them to convert. Um, into a either a California social purpose corporation or a Delaware public benefit corporation because both of those forms only have the mission baked into the charter so you don't have a question of this conflict you can carefully tailor how you are focusing on ESG as a company to the company itself to your your operations and needs okay so looking ahead there's been a lot of discussion from uh, former Chief Justice of the Delaware Court to academics arguing that companies should change their corporate form to embed stakeholder governance into their fiduciary duties. Has this surprised you that corporate form has gotten so much attention lately? And where do you see the future headed? I'm excited about it. Um, uh, yes, uh, it has surprised me a bit that this has taken off as quickly as it has because it is a sea shift. I mean, the corporate form in terms of the Delaware C Corporation and how it operates, you know, hadn't changed in, you know, decade upon decades. And now we have seen such sort of radical shift over the last six or seven years and then mainstream, mainstream acceptance that this might be a good idea to shift the fiduciary duties. Um, so I find it very exciting. I will say in my practice, um, when I first started working on corporate forum, my husband would take me to a cocktail party and somebody would ask me what I was working on. 
And I would get so excited about describing all of the power of corporate form that about a half an hour later, people would walk away dazed. Um, and now people actually call and want advice on a daily, if not hourly basis about whether they should consider it, how they should consider it. And not just Amelia, the new corporate forms, but also the things that you can do, the power of using a nonprofit, for example, or a public charity. Um, they're one of the things that predated the new corporate form where a bunch of us started playing with what are called hybrid or tandem forms where nonprofits and for-profits work very closely together. Um, the, the traditional structure is where there's a foundation on the side um, that is funded by the company, but the alternative that is being used much more commonly now is a public charity where there is diversity of funding sources for that public charity. And that public charity can really act, engage in commerce with the for-profit and act as a, a division, sort of an altruistic division. For example, the public charity could take charitable donations, purchase food from a food company, save jobs, and then donate that food or sell it really well below cost. And so it's really a very unique mechanism that I think can be used very well today um, for, for, for COVID-19 and for businesses that are, that are struggling. Um, but other than that, I, it is, there are many tools I think we need. We need to change our capital markets as well. Um, I think we need to change our tax law, but I think corporate form is a very effective tool if we really want to affect change coming out of this COVID crisis. And I am hopeful that if we build back better, um, as a as a world that this will be a consideration that if you're going to take government funding, if you are going to really want to to restructure your company in a way that can be most resilient, I think the best word for sustainability now is really resilient, most resilient to be able to see around the corners to prepare for the next 20 years, you really every company should consider converting to a new corporate form. Well, thank you so much for your time and thank you for uh, your innovation in corporate law and corporate form. Um, it's very exciting to hear you talk about all of the new forms, including the hybrid forms, the public charity sidecar that you've recently um, dreamed up. Uh, and uh, I'm excited to watch this space with you. Thank you so much, Amelia. And thanks to you and Berkeley for all of the fabulous work that you do and support that you provide as, as, companies, as companies grow and change. I'm Amelia Miazad from Berkeley Law. Thank you for staying on the ESG beat with me today.